You're listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls the only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lucero, and this is the Sunday, September 27, 2020 edition of Labor Express. On tonight's episode of Labor Express Radio, SEIU Local 73 and the Illinois Nurses Association at the UIC Hospital declare victory. Their one-week strike apparently paid off. We'll hear from members of SEIU about what they gained in the new contract. Then another victory in Chicago, the People's Academy defeats the ICE Academy. Members of Chicago's immigrants' rights community mobilized against one of the potentially most insidious programs launched by ICE yet. Called the ICE Academy, it appears that a six-week program scheduled to start September 15th at the ICE headquarters in Chicago would train average citizens to become extensions of ICE's enforcement and deportations regime. The program was apparently meant to be a pilot for possible nationwide rollout. But we shut it down, at least for now, in this immigrant labor strong town with an academy of our own. You will hear from some of the voices of the People's Academy on tonight's program. And in the second half of tonight's program, unions and environmental justice activists joined forces in the La Vieta community on Chicago's southwest side to address the impact of the expanding logistics industry in that community. The growth of the warehouse industry has impacts for both labor and the environment. Low-wage, non-union, mostly temp work in sprawling facilities that produces significant increases in diesel truck emissions and reduces air quality for the working-class residents who live near these facilities. El Viejo, the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization and Warehouse Workers for Justice, are exploring ways to demand better environmental standards, reductions in the spread of the logistics industry in communities like La Vieta, and better wages and working conditions for those who are working in the ones that are already created. We'll hear from leaders of both organizations later in the program. But let's start with the victory at UIC Hospital. On our last episode, we focused on the nurses, members of INA, the Illinois Nurses Association, and why they had decided to strike. I'd hoped to have them on tonight to talk about their win, but I was unable to make that happen. Hopefully we can hear more about their specifics of their new contractors in an upcoming program, but their public pronouncements indicate there were wins on their major issues like safe staffing ratios, guarantees of adequate access to PPE and wage increases. We'll just have to wait for more specifics at a future time. But SEIU Local 73, which represents a range of other hospital staff, held a virtual online press conference in which they laid out clearly what they felt were their contract gains. It started with a statement by Local 73 President Diane Palmer. I'm excited to announce that last night, the University of Illinois SEIU Local 73 workers reached an agreement with the university administration. This is a victory for all workers in Illinois and shows what possible, what's possible when workers unite and de- demand that employers respect us, protect us, and pay us. I am proud to say that because SEIU Local 73 workers stood up, the University of Illinois' lowest paid workers, some who, whom have worked a decade for the university will finally make $15 an hour. In an expensive city like Chicago, $15 an hour will mean these families won't have to struggle as hard to make ends meet. This is a contract that workers can be proud of and we accomplished some things that are first. When the university offered those they call heroes, zero raises for working during the pandemic These workers said, if we're essential, then you need to pay us and treat us like we're essential. Because these workers stood strong, they want an additional 2%. We also want increases 
on our shift differentials, bilingual pay for hospital workers, and the DSCC, and these are social workers who help families with kids with special needs. To the DSCC workers, we've only begun to fight for the issues that affect you in your workplace. All four agreements have language against outsourcing. In addition, workers receive language on safe staffing levels and a commitment to fill vacancies, which will aid workers with daunting workloads. I'm so proud of the black and brown women and men that stood shoulder to shoulder and led this strike, who convinced their coworkers striking was worth it. They never gave up. They were out there done every day, demanding justice for essential workers. UIC called them heroes, but their pay and benefits didn't reflect that. UIC now understand what it means to be essential. These workers have always been essential to the patients and students they serve. Now they will begin to receive the respect, protections and pay they deserve. This strike has served as a powerful symbol to essential workers everywhere working through this pandemic that together we can win. In addition to these amazing workers, I'd like to thank the scores of community allies, political allies, and of course, our labor allies. Without them, this victory would not have been possible. We appreciate their tireless efforts over the past 10 days in helping us achieve this historic agreement. The strike is over, but the work is not done. We're essential workers and we know our votes are also essential. We're going to be voting this fall and we're gonna vote for those who stood with us. We are an important part of this society and it's about time that we showed you. Thank you. All right, good morning. My name is Alicia Wumarogi. I am a physical therapist and a member of the professional bargaining unit. Um, this morning, I'm so excited to be able to speak on behalf of all of my fellow union members and confirm that the strike is over and that we are leaving the picket lines victorious in so many areas. Um, for the professional unit specifically, we gained establishment of annual market analyses to ensure that we can stay on par with market wages. This will keep our pay from becoming stagnant and falling far behind current rates, which is what was previously happening. We won new hire and midterm salary adjustments to allow for raises when new employees are hired on at rates higher than current employees and to establish criteria for implementing raises for individuals with outstanding performance and achievement. We were also able to increase incentives for receiving additional certifications relevant to our work. For all of the units, we were able to further develop equal pay language and add the definition of inequity to the contract. This will give us the ability to address the favoritism occurring in some departments and it prevents retaliation related to wages. The addition of bilingual pay is a major win as this is something that did not exist previously. And we were also able to get guarantees related to hazard pay during states of emergency, such as the current pandemic. I'd like to just take a moment to highlight that while the situation that led us to strike was very negative, um, the sacrifices and strength that I saw from my members turned this into a very positive experience. People came out every single day from every job title in my department. Um, I honestly just have so much pride and joy from witnessing it. It inspired myself and other members at the bargaining table. We wanted to fight for the people who were willing to fight for us. 
And that solidarity truly fueled me through the negotiation process. Um, in closing, I just want to acknowledge that just because we're announcing victory today, it does not mean that this fight is over. We have gained the confidence and the strength to take on management. We have demonstrated our collective power through the execution of this strike. Our members will be loud and proud about this win and what we did in these um, past few weeks. And we will continue fighting until all of our concerns have been addressed and we create the best working conditions possible. We will continue fighting until justice, fairness, equity, and respect become the standard at UIC. Thank you. Um, next, I'd like to bring up Levita Stewart um, and also a key member of the bargaining committee. Um, Levita, go ahead. Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Diane and Alicia have just like said everything, everything that I could possibly say. Alicia covered it all so well. But so what I'll cover is the excitement that is here on campus this morning. Um, the excitement, the togetherness, the unity. Um, I just wanna say, I'm, I'm just gonna add that the university did not prior to this contract have any respect for our union. The university did not expect for us to unite and come together. The university tried to divide us with the injunction and what they did was unified us they made us strong. They gave people the courage to fight for themselves, to fight for each other. You know, we accomplished so many things that had nothing to do with money, you know, respect, dignity, um, unity. You know, one thing that the clericals, which is the bargaining unit that I'm on, was fighting most for was respect, you know, and we will not be taken lightly again. And, and, and that is an amazing victory for us. You know, the taste of victory this morning, to see the sea of purple this morning, to see people high-fiving, to pe see people asking, how can I become a steward? UIC tried to break us during this pandemic when the last thing that we can afford to do was to strike people decided that they was not gonna take it anymore. And they came together and we came together and we came together strong. We supported one another. People did anything and everything they could for their brothers and sisters. And that's a victory. That is a victory in itself. We have been so counted out for so long. And now, you know, we, we have opened doors that have never been opened before. We have gotten gains for the entire units across the boards. That has never been done before. And it wasn't until we put that sea of purple in the streets and we, one person didn't do that. You know, collectively, we all came together and UIC made us do that because we weren't unified like that before. And so I'm grateful for the inspiration that we've gotten and like Alicia said, oh, this is not over. We, we made it through the battle, but the war is to come because there are still serious inequalities and, and think, 
the, it's against the policies, the corrupt policies that have been in existence. And so that don't change. These policies have been in existence since the beginning of time. And you don't change that in a day, in 10 days. You change that by consistently chipping away at it. And that is what we're doing. And we're doing that together. And so we have accomplished so much with our community partners, our brothers and sisters. And so I feel like a kid on Christmas morning, this morning. I just, I'm just delated um, with everything that we've accomplished. I've been so inspired by people who originally said they weren't gonna strike. And I told the brothers and sisters, if you show up on Monday, People will come out on Tuesday and it happened and more people came out on Wednesday. And so we won in so many ways. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for people by working people. I should point out there that uh, those wage gains, uh, though certainly you know worth uh, being somewhat excited about, I am a little interested in finding out more because that $15 an hour that they quoted there, you know, the uh, standard in Chicago, the uh, minimum wage in Chicago will be going up to $15 an hour in uh, just a year's time. So I don't know that that is a boost for this year and will it be going up in future years of the contract. There is some interesting questions to ask about that. So hopefully we can get some more answers on that on a future episode. September 15th was supposed to be the day that ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, the government agency tasked with tracking down and deporting undocumented immigrants, launched a pilot program in Chicago that bore frightening resemblance to the type of paramilitary organizations that are common in right-wing authoritarian regimes worldwide. I hate conspiracy theories and will not entertain them on this program. And I do my best to avoid hyperbole as I think it's lazy thinking that does little to help our movements understand the sociopolitical terrain on which we operate and how best to maneuver in a given historical moment. But when truly disturbing developments with clear historical analogs arise, they are worth pointing out and we'd be fools to ignore them. So what do you call it when ICE decides to offer to selected members of the community six days of training over a six-week period on the goals, objectives, and methods of the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement's enforcement and removal operations that its own words includes defensive tactics, firearms familiarization, and targeted arrests, as well as visits to detention centers? That strikes me as ICE attempting to recruit citizens wanting to be extensions of ICE operations. And that is precisely the conclusion that Congressman Luis Gutierrez, who was quoted in a Newsweek article that revealed much of the intent of the program, he was quoted as saying that this appeared to be inviting people to become an extension of ICE to possibly surveil their neighbors who might be undocumented. I have linked up the Newsweek article on Labor Express Facebook page. If you want to read more on this in more detail, uh, check out that article I should note that ICE claims this was not the intent of the Academy, despite the language of these invitations that were apparently sent out to potential participants, and their public-facing descriptions of the Academy make the program sound a bit more tame, more like a get-to-know ICE educational effort. The plan caught the attention of immigrants' rights activists in Chicago for good reason, who organized a shutdown the Academy, and shut it down they apparently did. Two weeks prior to the 15th, ICE announced that it was canceling the program, at least for now, It sounds like they may try it again in the spring. ICE claims the cancellation is due to COVID-19 concerns, but those organizing the Counter People's Academy for outside ICE headquarters in downtown Chicago on the 15th argued their organizing was at least as much of a factor as the disease. 
A couple hundred protesters filled the sidewalks and spilled out into the streets outside ICE headquarters on the 15th and, and were soon forced by the police due to the numbers to move to the nearby Federal Plaza. At the plaza, Esmeralda, an organizer with the Brighton Park Neighborhood Council, one of the several community organizations who helped organize the protests, spoke about the victory and opened up the People's Academy, a series of speeches by activists from immigrants' rights groups, community groups, anti-police brutality organizations, and racial justice fighters who talked about things like the history of immigration, the history of ICE, issues of police brutality, CPAC, the Fight for a Citizens Police Accountability Council, and other things. Here's Esmeralda. Now, as we all know, the ICE Academy has been shut down! For now. So we are still here today to say that we don't want ICE in our communities now or ever. We have been winning. That's why ICE is trying to come into our city and our state to try to intimidate us. But we didn't let that happen. We've been organizing to abolish ICE in our state, but we still have work to do to defund ICE, Customs and Border Patrol, and the police, and instead invest in our communities. The Department of Homeland Security has been working on a set of coordinated attacks on our communities, but we continue to fight back. While DHS attempts to weaken our voting power, make it more difficult for immigrants to naturalize and vote, remove DACA protections to many people like me, and increase surveillance in our communities, we continue to build power and organize. We demand, we demand that our elected officials commit to not one dollar to ICE and CBP, and we will turn out the immigrant vote. We know that the systems that work to disappear, disempower, and criminalize immigrants have the same white supremacist roots as the police, who also disappear and criminalize our black, brown, and immigrant communities. We will not allow systematic oppression and anti-blackness to divide our movements. So we are here together to say today, abolish ICE, defund police, and we're also here to say, Black Lives Matter. Come on, say it with me three times. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. And because we believe Black Lives Matter, we join our allies in demanding community control of the police now. Council, CPAC, the community becomes empowered to hold cops accountable for the crimes that they commit. We'll learn more about that in a bit. So now, this is the People's Academy. So we're going to turn it over to our community teachers to teach us a bit more about the truth behind these white supremacist systems. You're listening to Labor Express, which calls only English language the labor news and current affairs radio program. I spoke with Setlai Bueno of Enlace, one of the lead organizers of the People's Academy, to explain more about the ICE Academy and why it was important that they shut it down. Uh, my name is Citlali uh, Bueno. I'm an immigration organizer with Enlace Chicago. 
And can you talk a little bit about why these, uh, this event was planned for today? What was going on at ICE today? So originally this event was going to be uh, to shut down the ICE Academy that was going to be starting today. Um, it ha was announced that it was going to be postponed, but we still wanted to come out, show our power. Um, we had various actions before to send emails um, and other things like that um, that we believe uh, were what um, led to it be postponed. Um, so we wanted to come out, out today to show that power. Um, to celebrate um, and to also support CPAC um, because ICE and um, police are connected um, and we know that in order to abolish ICE you also have to defund the police. So we came here um, to do that today. And what was the ICE Academy? What were they uh, trying to do? Um, they were going to be teaching civilians uh, different, uh, different things about ICE. Um, I believe that there was, um, the report said that they were going to be teaching them firearms, how to um, be able to um, find people that are undocumented and arrest them, things like that. So we weren't going to allow that to happen. So basically they were trying to enlist civilians, citizens basically, to be an extension of ICE, to actually uh, go into their communities and try to enforce immigration laws on their neighbors is what it comes down to, it sounds like. Yes, and we weren't going to allow that to happen. Right. Now, they said today that they were celebrating the fact that the, the ICE Academy was shut down, but they said for now, um, is this something that you expect is going to return? Um, we're ready for it. If it does, um, we can't let our guard down, and we're going to keep on fighting until um, ICE is abolished, and that won't be a possibility. I hear that the, uh, the ICE administrator that was behind this whole plan himself seems to have... Uh, uh, been somewhat embarrassed by the whole reaction that came out of this and the organizing that happened um, and is kind of back on his heels. Do you feel that that's the case that maybe you've really, you know, the pushback has really been successful in the sense where maybe they'll back off? Um, I think that they did see that there was a lot of pushback um, and that they can't do those things in the city and in the state um, and um, that if they try again, we're going to keep on fighting. Now, is this something that they just did in Chicago? Are they trying similar things around other parts of the country? Um, I'm not 100% sure, so I, I don't want to give an answer to, sure. to it in case it's wrong. Right, yeah. It does seem surprising, though, that they would do it in Chicago, given that this is a place that I would say most people would think of as one of the more safer places for immigrants in the country. Yeah, well, we are also um, supporting getting rid of the carve-outs that are part of the Welcoming City Ordinance that does allow the police to work with ICE. Um, and we know that there's things like that that still allow ICE to be within uh, the city of Chicago and within Illinois um, and that we're fighting against. Um, so even though that uh, Chicago is seen as a sanctuary city, we know that it's not um, and that there's still a lot of things that need to get fixed. I know you get, need to get going here. You're still trying to uh, get everything organized here. But one last question. It does seem that, you know, in the kind of what we all hope is maybe the final days of the uh, Trump administration here, that um, some things have been really ratcheted up. It seems like they're trying to push through as many crazy things they possibly can at the last minute. Do you think that this at all is an extension of that? Or uh, do you expect these kind of things would happen almost regardless of who's in office? I think they are definitely connected. We've seen uh, what this administration has done, how it uh, feels about the immigrant community and just people of color. Um, so I personally would say that they are connected. Um, I wouldn't run it past them to not for it not to be connected. Um, so definitely this is another attack for our immigrant community by the administration. 
Well, congratulations. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for people by working people. According to the info put out by ICE, the ICE Academy had planned to include their version of the history of U.S. immigration and of the agency itself. Will the People's Academy provide a people's history of both via Ariana Salgado of OCAD, Organized Communities Against Deportations? Um, so, hi everyone, my name is Ariana Salgado. I work with Organized Communities Against Deportations. And, yes. <laughs> And uh, before our plans changed, uh, thanks to our uh, very reliable police department over there, um, we were right in front of the department uh, of the building of the Department of Homeland Security, a building that also houses ICE. And ICE here in Chicago is currently being guided um, and led by um, Robert Wadian, who you can see uh, joined us today. Um, so if you were ever wondering what the face of ICE looks like, this is him right here. Yeah, ill. Um, okay, so I'm going to be talking a little bit about what DHS is, where ICE came from, and that history. And I'm going to do it first in English, y luego lo voy a traducir en español, okay? ICE was created in 2003, after the pa passage of the U.S. Patriot Act. This act gave way to the Department of Homeland Security, which moved Border Patrol and ICE from being part of uh, this new department instead of the Justice Department where it was originally located. This is a pivotal shift as it ties immigration to national security, making it clear that the U.S. sees immigrants as threats, as dangerous, as, as something that the country needs protection from. Since the creation of DHS, ICE and CBP have received immense amounts of funding that has justified the war on terror, which continues to target Arab and Muslim people. The amount of funding that they received has turned them into the largest federal po policing agency, which has given way to the violent enforcement um, that we continue to experience in our immigrant communities today. While ICE's existence is relatively recent, its, its functions are legitimized not only by the giant amounts of funding they received, but also by the long-standing history of anti-immigrant policies in the U.S. It is undeniable that this country was founded on stolen land, that through the continuous stealing of land, the U.S. has worked to establish and sold settler society, which has always given preference to whiteness. This is something that is made that was made clear and solidified through the very first Naturalization Act in 1790 that limited citizenship solely to free white persons. Building on this exclusionary history, the Chinese Exclusion Act acts were the first federal anti-immigrant laws that set the tone for what we continue to experience today: need for docu documents, border inspection, and migrant detention. These were followed by the 1994 Johnson-Reed Act, which not only banned Asians altogether, placed restriction on immigrant populations, but also created border patrol. The connections between the immigration system and the criminal system is also something that cannot be ignored. Starting with the criminalization of entering and re-entering the country without authorization in 1929, a law that still exists today and is responsible for the separation of parents and children at the border. The 1996 laws that, signed, uh, that were signed by Clinton and uh, they were designed by our dearest Rahm Emanuel, you might remember him. Um, <laughs> uh, further connected these two systems. 
Emmett folks with criminal records a target for deportation and mandatory detention, giving way to an incredible increase in arrests, deportations, and growth of immigrant detention. Because we understand that both the immigration and criminal system are rooted in white supremacy and the control and exclusions of black and brown communities. This is something that has been made super clear through terrible actions throughout history, but I'm sure you all have read articles by now of ICE conducting hysterectomies on detained immigrants in detention centers. This is also something that has routinely been done on prison population, right? And we can see how much of a control power they are just you know, if you paid attention to how they treated us today and refused to let us on the streets. OCAD notes that in order to effectively abolish ICE, we need to abolish the police state. These are systems that feed on each other and cause violence and most definitely do not keep us safe. We keep each other safe and we are all we need. You heard Ariana mention the hysterectomies in that speech performed on immigrant women in detention without their consent. That is no hyperbole. In case you may have missed this story, a doctor at an ICE detention facility in Georgia, whose nickname was the uterus collector, was regularly performing this procedure that eliminates a woman's ability to bear children without the consent of the woman he performed it on and without medical necessity. I've linked an article on the Labor Express Facebook page about this if you're interested in knowing more. It is indeed nothing new as racist sterilization programs against women of color run by the U.S. government have a long history. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English-language labor news and current affairs radio program. We need to take a short station ID break, but when we return, environmental justice and building power for low-wage workers comes together in an exciting partnership between an EJ organization and a worker center in La Vieta. An interview with Edith Tovar of El Viejo and Sandy Moreno of Warehouse Workers for Justice. You do not want to miss that, so make sure to stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for people by working people. In the working class immigrant community of La Vieta on Chicago's southwest side, a potentially groundbreaking partnership is underway. El Viejo, the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization, long a pioneer in the environmental justice movement, has partnered with one of Chicago's newest workers' centers, Warehouse Workers for Justice. Born out of one of the country's most militant democratic progressive unions in our nation's history, UE, the United Electrical Workers Union. They're hoping to take on the logistics industry, which is rapidly expanding in their community. El Viejo is concerned that the growth of the warehouses in Little Village means a deterioration of air quality as the number of diesel trucks moving in and out of the area significantly increases. El Viejo recently won a decades-long fight to close an air-quality-destroying coal-fired power plant, and the community is still inundated by other sources of air pollution, and they do not want to see one polluter replaced by another. Warehouse Workers for Justice has been organizing workers in the expanding warehouse industry, especially in the far southwest suburbs, but in the city as well. These jobs are low-paying, mostly long-term temp work, hired through subcontracting agencies. Highly exploitative and non-union, some of the worst jobs in the economy, but at the same time the only option for many low-income workers, almost exclusively people of color. Can the goals of protecting the health and environmental quality of a working-class community like La Villita be linked up with efforts to improve the wages and working conditions of workers in those same industries that often contribute to the environmental degradation. El Viejo and Warehouse Workers for Justice think it's possible. 
I met up with Sandy Moreno of the Workers' Center and Edith Tovar of El Viejo virtually, that is by computer, a couple weeks ago to talk about this exciting partnership. Unfortunately, technology conspired against us a bit, and the audio is not perfect. You will occasionally hear short second or two long gaps as the sound from either Edith or Sandy drops out. I do apologize for this. And both their mics were a bit hot. But hey, even the big guys, the MSNBCs and the CNNs are struggling these days with audio and video quality in this virtual interview COVID world that we're living in. So hopefully you can give us a little slack here at Labor Express, as I think what Edith and Sandy have to say is really important. It would figure, of course, that the very first two audio drops would have happened right at the top of the interview as both women are trying to introduce themselves. And, of course, their names is what got dropped out. So what you're going to hear here is first Sandy Moreno of the Warehouse Workers for Justice, followed by Edith Tovar of El Viejo. An organizer with Warehouse Workers for for Justice. I'm with the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization. I'm a Just Transition Community Organizer. And you guys have formed what I think is um, really a, a, a really interesting, a really important partnership as organizations. You know, there's long been talk of the need to build relationships between the labor movement and environmental justice organizations. There's, I think, a long time been a uh, an, an ideological commitment to that on both sides, right? A, a belief that that needs to be the case and an understanding of the race and class dimensions of environmental justice work and how that fits with the labor movement. But unfortunately, I think concretely, that's not always manifested itself, right? It's not always, you know, come together in actual organizing. So it's exciting when you see something like this where it's actually made concrete uh, right at the grassroots level. So can you talk a little bit about what you guys, uh, what this partnership is, how it formed, what, what's going on? Yeah, if, uh, Sandy, if you want, I can start us off. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so um, I know that um, the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization uh, have been working with warehouse workers uh, for a little over two years now. Um, much of the um, conversation that we started off um, was just a basic understanding of intermodal facilities. Um, we um, at El Vejo largest industrial corridor in the city of Chicago within the Little Village community. And so um, obviously with the research that um, we have been doing over the years, we definitely wanted to know more of where um, the products come from, right? They just don't come to Chicago first. They go somewhere else. Um, and then obviously they get distributed and they are sent out to different um, stores, right? Retail stores in the city. And so initially, the conversation where um, Just Transition organizers uh, received, got a tour from uh, Roberto Clack, who is one of the organizers at Warehouse Workers for Justice, um, to really understand um, the movement of goods. Um, the implications between the labor movement. Um, how are folks um, being protected? Are any of these companies actually looking out for their workers? Um, obviously, the answer is no, not really. Um, a lot of injustices, unfortunately, uh, happen in in these um, warehousing facilities, right? Um, and then in Little Village, right, we're looking at the other side of the coin where 
you know, we have the third largest industrial corridor. There's obviously a need for jobs, right? Um, and much of that um, labor power that we have as disposable um, because we do have a large uh, community population. M many of our community residents um, are predominantly Mexican-American, Central American, Black uh, immigrants, right? And unfortunately, we also have a pretty low, um, I'm sorry, pretty high poverty rate. Um, and so when we hear about companies like, or developers like Hilco, for example, come to the community and promise thousands of jobs, of course, to be able to have the opportunity, right? Um, because many you know, obviously we need jobs to provide for our families, to provide for ourselves, to be able to sustain ourselves. Um, but many of these jobs, unfortunately, due to like the research and the ongoing organizing that warehouse workers uh, for justice have been doing, right, aren't great. Um, they um, are abusive. And also <laughs> a lot of these companies are also bringing their diesel trucks into our community. Um, so we're seeing, you know, the the terrible uh, labor conditions and we're also seeing the terrible environmental uh, um, you know that, that that's coming to the community and so for us it was really important to to not only learn about you know how many industries operate within the industrial corridor but actually learn about what are the working conditions that many of, of our local residents right are are going through and so for us this partnership is is really valuable is really important for us to to continue to to move forward yeah so um like Edith said um you know it's very important for us to have this partnership because we're able to contextualize um how workers in warehouse industries are affected not only within the labor conditions but also outside of work right so trucks coming into you know we work in you know cook and will counties and we do a lot of the work in the will county area in which there's a large you know propagation of uh, warehouses and we do see um the detriments of you know the high you know diesel industry like the trucks coming by you can see the infrastructure is not um, well taken care of so that um and that affects the community affects people living in the area and most of the up in warehouses working there and you know the labor conditions are, is another of the issues that are not they don't have the you know First, they don't have job security. Like there's the working conditions are, you know, not so great. And especially during the pandemic, as we see that a lot of these warehouse workers are essential, we see that the warehouse industry is not, um, it does not provide the right protections that workers need, and especially right now during during this pandemic. So for us, it's very important to. As an organization, we do, Warehouse Workers for Justice, we do um, focus a lot on education, educating workers, and not only educating workers on their rights, but also like contextualizing that workers in the warehouse industry, especially in the Will County area, that they have enormous power. Uh, to, so we want to empower workers by contextualizing 
the industry that they work in. Um, so this partnership is very important because we we can, you know, sort of uh, break down um, the industry, how it works, and also the power that workers have at the same time and the effects that it has outside of their workplace. Now, looking at it from the outside, right, I'm sure um, what you probably hear from people is to say, well, aren't the warehouse workers more concerned about, you know, creating more warehouse jobs? And aren't the environmental groups more concerned about preventing uh, the spread of warehouses because the environmental impact, right? And doesn't this put you guys, you know, at loggerheads potentially because of your interests? What do you say to that? It's so funny, and we're smiling because we're actually uh, working on a workshop <laughs> that addresses uh, those exact uh, concerns, right? Um, so, um, yeah, um, it's it's definitely um, funny, I think, for me personally, right, when I go to meetings that developers are hosting um, or virtual meetings during this time, right, um, that developers are hosting and saying that, you know, um, environmental justice organizations don't want jobs. Um, they don't want their communities to prosper. Um, and, our, and our, you know, take to that is like, what kind of jobs are you talking about, right? We're not saying no to all jobs. Um, we already know um, because the city of Chicago doesn't have an actual inventory of the type of industries that are operating within our community. So there is already um, knowledge that is missing from elected officials or appointed uh, city officials, right, on what supposedly is good for us and what is bad for us. Um, what we know is that uh, you know, 26th Street um, is a very popular commercial economic corridor in our second highest tax revenue to the city of Chicago. But we're not seeing the same investment back to our community. Why is it that we have the largest, you know, mental health institution, which is Cook County Jail, but how come we don't have, you know, museums? How come we don't have large-scale community centers? Instead, we house, you know, the you know the third largest um, industrial corridor in, in the city, and so it's not that we don't want jobs; is that dignity? We want jobs that are you know above living, you know, paying wages. Um, I heard a comment a few weeks ago of saying, saying, telling you know, telling me, weren't you part of the group that fought for you know fifteen dollars an hour? You have fifteen dollars an hour now. Why are you complaining? And it's like, well. It was actually 2011 when we were fighting for, you know, $15 an hour. Um, and, you know, these are your neighbors. These are, you know, of your relatives that, you know, are working in warehouses. Like, listen to them. Listen to their stories. Listen, you know, listen to them sharing, hey, guess what? They actually cut a few of my hours or I worked extra hours and they didn't pay. So for us when we hear that kind of language and trying to pin us against each other right instead of actually listening to us and taking into consideration the research that we've done the uh, you know the 
X amount of years of organizing that we've done um, is that our neighbors know what's best for us. And what's best for us is definitely not industries that continue to pollute, right? That, that continue to emit particular matter um, that affect, you know, all of our residents that affect our public health, um, that affect our, our mother planet. And so um, to us, that's just like very, um, that's just language that, you know, uh, elected officials or even developers try to use to pin us against each other and you know as a, as an organization we just don't allow that to happen because we've done the work um we know who we're working with um and so that just doesn't fly for us <laughs> yeah how about sandy how what do you what do you think about that again you know this idea that you know your members would want more warehouse jobs and that these environmental justice groups are preventing this the you know jobs from being created that's the way again i think some people on the outside would see this what, what do you say to that um i mean i think it's okay to think about these two binaries right like it's okay want you know, a better environment, you know, environmental impact for the communities and also, you know, at the same time have warehouses, right? But it's okay to like um, criticize or have, a, you know, ha understand the impacts that warehouses are, are you know, giving here at, at the, in the community. So um, at the end of the day, I think that we want a will like a we want an industry that is not only understanding that it's affecting the uh, the workers but we want you know like she said like we want more job security higher paying wages so those two binaries uh, you know they don't have to be against each other yeah we are part of the warehouse industry we're part of like um helping workers, but at the same time, we are allowed to have, you know, um, an educated, you know, workforce of how how the, the warehouse industry is impacting everybody. You know, one thing I can say, see here too, is um, how your demands can end up mutually reinforcing each other, right? So, um, from the uh, the union supporting the EJ group side, when the EJ groups demand community benefits agreements or certain restrictions on the operations of these businesses, uh, that's something that the warehouse workers can get behind and support uh, um, when these businesses get established. At the same time, when the warehouse workers are looking for you know, uh, increases of minimum wages or, uh, you know, uh, union contracts at these facilities and so on. That's something that the environmental justice groups then can get behind. So there, there's a great deal of, of potential synergy and of mutual support that can go on between the organizations, I, I, from what I can see. Absolutely. I mean, if I can add um, an example of that was, you know, Hilco Redevelopment Partners is the company that bought the former Crawford Coal Plant in Little Village and also Fisk Power Plant in Pilsen, right? Um, the, the first round of hearings when they went to city, um, city council to ask for the tax break, right? Alejo was able to obviously share why the company shouldn't um, get a tax break. Um, and after, um, and in the second day, Hilco was, you know, given the opportunity to kind of share. Um, and they also brought workers, they brought union workers, um, warehouse workers, um, 
construction workers, I mean, not warehouse workers, um, that were unionized. And many of these workers were also part of the community. And so when they listened to to what we had to say the first day, right, the second day, um, many of the workers actually didn't testify in support of Hilco um, getting their tax break, right, because they were you know, they, they understood well, not only were many of these workers from Little Village, right, but they, they listened and understood um, the, the um, environmental and health impacts that, you know, this, this warehouse facility would bring, right? And, it's, it, and we're not even at, at the labor point, per se, right, inside a warehouse yet, where, where we were talking about even the, the demolition and the construction of it, where um, many uh, of, of those folks in, in that field, right, in the construction field, are, are part of unions. And so um, I think for us, it was really powerful to kind of um, somehow get that support from workers, right? Especially the workers that were from the community of, of not testifying in support of this development, meaning that, you know, sometimes they, you know, because they're workers, maybe they won't get the job. It didn't get approved or not. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the issue of uh, some of those early permits and the construction workers. Uh, I was at one of the uh, initial hearings a couple of years ago with Hilco Development. And one of the, I think, kind of, more frustrating for me and, and, and kind of the flip sides of, of how this relationship unfortunately often goes um, mm-hmm. is right before that hearing, um, the trades, uh, the construction workers and so on that were due to, to, to um, come to that hearing were originally were going to testify against Hilco um, because uh, they were uh, contracting non-union workers in the construction side too, which was, you know, uh, unheard of. But then, right before the hearing, they kind of cut a side deal with the with the trades and said, "No, no we're not going to do that anymore. We'll we'll make sure to hire union workers for construction." And the uh, the uh, construction workers came into that hearing all in favor of Hilco. And and I, okay. I I remember asking at that hearing both of the company and directly to the union. Well, what about the jobs of the people that are going to be hired to work in these facilities once they're built? Are you going to guarantee those are going to be union jobs? And of course, there was no guarantee of that, right? And I and I talked I talked to the union directly after the the hearing, and I said, you know, wouldn't it have made more sense for you guys? to you know stand up for not just your members interest right now but for workers in general by saying you know w- we're going to demand that you ensure that any jobs in the future are going to be union jobs in these facilities um and they said well that's not the interest of our of our membership right this narrow kind of view of what you know uh, union interests are um and that's that's the that's where i think you guys are getting beyond right this kind of narrow understanding of what uh, of union interests are, whatever, into a broader, more class-based understanding of, of what our interests are. Yeah, and I think that's definitely the goal, at least, you know, between, you know, building um, a collective power between El Vejo and warehouse workers is that we do, we just don't want to focus on the now, right? Like you said, Jerry, we want to really focus on the bigger, broader picture of, like, you know, many many workers have power and they just haven't been um, really going deep within themselves, right? And, and, and utilizing um, their, their collective power as, as a movement. And so um, hopefully with the ongoing workshops that we have, um, you know, between El Bejo and warehouse workers, you know, folks are, are, are going to be able to 
to see that and, and hopefully use some of the points that we present, right, when they're talking to their peers or when they're talking, you know, hopefully in their next uh, union meeting, right, of like, hey, I heard this and I think it's great <laughs> and I think we should move forward uh, with it, right, in supporting not only our members, our union members, but also supporting the, the, the future employees of, of whatever uh, facility is, is going to open. And Edith, I'm glad you brought up the trainings. Um, Sandy, could you talk a little bit more too about these uh, joint trainings that you guys have been uh, organizing and, and what those are all about? Yeah, so we've, we've uh, partnered to start, um, you know, just a, a few workshops or trainings. We call it educational sessions. Um, and they're right now we're doing them in Spanish, but we're focusing on talking about you know, the overall like warehouse industry, how it works, you know, the hubs that we have here in Chicago, how, you know, those hubs are also like the choke points in, in the area that workers, you know, to empower workers to know that um, their labor is important, right? And w within this, you know, educational sessions, we also want to bring out, you know, the, you know, contextualized, but also um, talk about, you know, some breaking some of the myths that we we've heard, you know, within like organizing or, you know, the environmental side, like you were you were saying, Edith. Um, so this partnership is mainly to, you know, spread the word about um, the warehouse industry, both in the environmental side and, and the organizing side, and uh, hope that workers, um, you, you know, are able to uh you know, learn something about what, how the, the industry is working, how it affects us, and, you know, um, hopefully we can do more of these educational sessions in the future. And these educational sessions, are they open to the public? Um, how, where are they held? How are they organized? So right now, um, we are, because of the pandemic, we're not able to, you know, do these sessions in person, but we are doing it through our Facebook Live. Um, and so we will be coming out with the date for our next session. Our first one, uh, it was mainly like giving an introduction of the warehouse industry and giving an introduction of what Warehouse Workers for Justice stands for and also what um, Little Village Environmental Justice Group stands for, right? So just giving like a broad understanding of that and the warehouse industry, both on the labor side and the environmental side. Now our second session, what we're thinking is doing um, more of um, um, breaking the myths, right? Um, talking about you know a lot of the a lot of the workforce that that we come in contact with um, don't know that they could organize for better protections in the workplace, but they can. You know, so that's a worker centered that is very important. You know, to bring you know about that information that yes, you know, you know workers can stand up and you know, demand better safety and health, especially during COVID. Um, and then also on the other side of, you know, yes, um, as environmental groups, like they, we, we're not saying we don't want any warehouses, but just to understand like the impacts and, and, um, and just debunk those bits of like, oh, you know, we don't want any warehouses to be, you know, uh, be I'm sorry, like, const uh, be constructed in the area. It's just more like, 
be aware of like the environmental impacts that it, that's having on the community. So um, the whole, you know, workshops that we're trying to do is, is based on, you know, just educational sessions so that we can contextualize what um, this warehouse and logistics industry, which is, you know, it's an industry that not a lot of folks know much more about. And it's so important for us to spread the word because once we understand, you know, the conditions that we work in or live in, you know, we are better equipped to like fight it, right? We're talking about, you know, we need better democracy in the workplace and in our communities. And this is one way to educate ourselves and, and, you know, bring about change. So we hope that this information helps, you know, workers understand the situation and, and how they can make it a better place. So you heard there about those trainings, those forums, online forums that LVAO and Warehouse Workers for Justice are hosting as part of this great partnership they put together. The next training that they're holding is going to be called Breaking Myths Around Labor and Environmental Justice Movement, and it will take place October 15th at 5 p.m. via their Facebook Live channels on either the Warehouse Workers for Justice or the LVAO Facebook pages, either one. You can go there and be part of that. Uh, right now, I have links to both LVAO and Warehouse Workers for Justice pages at laborexpress.org. So all you need to do is go to laborexpress.org, click on the links to either LVAO or Warehouse Workers for Justice uh, pages, and you will be able to uh, be a part of that again October 15th at 5 p.m. So definitely uh, check that out. Again, the title of the, of the training is Breaking Myths Around Labor and Environmental Justice Movement. Well, it's all for tonight's program. You can always find out more about Labor Express by going to our website, which is basically our Facebook page at laborexpress.org, laborexpress.org. Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBEW Local 1220. The views expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers, not those of IBEW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio and Podcast Network, working for those voices broadcasting worldwide. 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The songs are theme is called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. Yeah, this one's for the workers who talk.